0: Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Alison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 36 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley, and thank you so much for tuning in. This week we are in part three of our mini-series on unfair dismissal. So for those of you who haven't listened to the last couple of episodes, this is a mini-series, six episodes, that are focusing in, really focusing in on unfair dismissal. Um, You don't have to have listened to the last two parts in order to listen to this one, but it will give you some good background to do so before you listen to this one. And hopefully it will provide you with lots of helpful information and guidance on dealing with unfair dismissal and um, dismissing employees. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to get straight into this week's content, which is about the reasonableness of a dismissal. Okay, as we heard in episode 35 of the podcast, so part two of this mini series, there are five potentially fair reasons for dismissing an employee. And that's the first test if you are in the, if you, And that's the first test an employer has to get through if they um, have a claim for unfair dismissal in the employment tribunal. And it's the first thing you should really think about when you're deciding to dismiss somebody. What is the reason and does it fit within one of those fair reasons? So if you want to go back to episode two to listen to what the fair reasons are and some examples, then please do. Um, And then the next test is in relation to the reasonableness of the decision to dismiss that employee for that reason. And The test for reasonableness is actually set out in section 98.4 of the Employment Rights Act which provides that where an employer can show a potentially fair reason for dismissal, the determination of the question whether the dismissal is fair or unfair having regard to the reason shown by the employer, a depends on whether in the circumstances including the size and administrative resources of the employer's undertaking, the employer acted reasonably or unreasonably in treating it as a sufficient reason for dismissing the employee and b that shall be determined in accordance with equity and the substantial merits of the case so that's the uh, statutory test the legal test of how you determine reasonableness of a dismissal Now um, the reasonableness test has developed over a number of years through various cases and really the question of fairness of a dismissal can be broken down into two further elements. The first is um, whether the dismissal was procedurally fair and then the second is whether it is substantially fair. Now obviously in relation to procedure that's much easier to determine and for employers to get it right. And for the different types of reason of dismissal there are different procedures to follow. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the procedure, so getting your procedure right. So really, whilst there are different testers and different procedures to follow in relation to the different types of dismissal, fundamentally for all dismissals, employers should ensure that one, the employee knows they're at risk of dismissal, Two, the employee knows why they're at risk of dismissal. And three, the employee is given the right to make representations on their own behalf in relation to those allegations. So really um, those are the three fundamental keys to getting your procedure right if you are going to dismiss an employee. In addition to the fundamentals that I've just spelled out for you, you have to look at what the ACAS code of practice says in relation to how you deal with dismissals and disciplinaries. Now, Um, episode four of this mini-series on unfair dismissal is going to focus in on both the ACAS procedures, contractual procedures and handbook procedures. Um, So I'm not going to go into into a lot of detail but what I would say is that the ACAS code is relevant particularly for conduct and performance dismissals. It doesn't apply to redundancies and it doesn't necessarily apply to um, dismissals for some other substantial reason, but although it doesn't expressly apply to those others, you should always have in mind the AKS Code of Practice. So really, when you're looking at dismissing somebody, if you have in your mind the acas Code and the fundamentals for dismissals, you, you should have the, the starting point for um, a good procedure. In addition to the ACAS code there is also some non-statutory guidance um, from ACAS about best practice Um, and as I say that's something that is worth having a read of before you embark on any disciplinary or dismissal procedures and I'll put links in the show notes to that so you can have a look at that as well. So what I'm going to take first is conduct and performance dismissals because, you know, this, this is the one that comes up in my opinion most often. Um, the kind of cases that mostly come to the employment tribunal are in relation to conduct. Um, and so I'm going to cover both of these off, conduct and performance. So first off, in relation to conduct, if you're dismissing somebody for a conduct reason, say so misconduct or gross misconduct, as a minimum you need to investigate. So you need to investigate the allegations. You have to inform the employee of the allegations. You have to hold a hearing with the employee and you have to give them the right of appeal. Okay, so that's the fundamentals. So as you can see, in relation to conduct and performance dismissals, it doesn't differ too much from the fundamentals that I talked about earlier. Now, once you've Fulfilled the test of a fair procedure, the employment tribunal will then look at the the reasonableness of the decision to dismiss. What I should say in relation to following a fair procedure is that it's no good for um, an employer to say that following a fair procedure would have made no difference to the decision to dismiss. So it's no good saying, "Well, it was bang to rights; so they done it." So even if I'd followed the, the procedure I was required to, I would have reached the same decision. The dismissal will still be unfair for procedural reasons and then what the Employment Tribunal can do then is take a deduction of compensation in relation to the uh, question of whether they would have been dismissed anyway and that's called a pokey deduction which I'll be talking about when it comes to um, compensation which is in episode 5 of this mini-series so that's to come. In any event, if you fail to follow a fair procedure, then it is likely that the Employment Tribunal will find that the dismissal is unfair. Now, if you get over the ho- hurdle of the procedure that you've followed, the Employment Tribunal will then look at the reasonableness. And this test is called the range of reasonable responses. And it's an objective test. And it's where the employ- Employment Tribunal will look at whether or not it was reasonable for the employer to dismiss the employee. It's irrelevant whether or not the employment tribunal decided that they would have dismissed or not. It's what the view of the employer was at the time they took that decision. And this is where a number of the cases have come from, is around employment tribunals making decisions on unfair dismissal based on their own opinion of what happened, rather than looking at it from the view of what the employer was thinking at the time. So there are a number of cases, and I've probably talked about a few in the podcast, and I'll link to some in the show notes. But essentially, they always end up at the Employment Appeal Tribunal, where um, invariably the Employment Appeal Tribunal will overturn the decision on the basis that the um, Employment Tribunal substituted their own opinion for that of the employer. Now what will be in the employment tribunal's mind as well is also the evidence that was before the employer at the time they made the decision to dismiss. This can be a tricky one because what normally happens is once a a case gets to the employment tribunal or by the time it gets to the employment tribunal, should I say, um, the employees manage to obtain further evidence to support their defence, all of that sort of thing. And what the employment tribunal will have to do is make sure that they don't take that into account when considering the employer's reasonableness. So even if evidence comes to light later on that shows that the employee couldn't possibly have done what they were alleged to have done, um, then the Employment Tribunal can't take that into consideration when they are deciding unfair dismissal or not. Now when it comes to conduct dismissals, there is a key case which um, if you're ever involved in an unfair dismissal case, you'll hear it being spoken about and that's the Birchall test. So that's in a case called BHS versus Birchall from 1978. And in that case, it was decided and, and the tester set out about the range of reasonable responses. And that is to say that a dismissal will only be fair if at the time of the dismissal, the employer believed the employee to be guilty of the conduct. They had reasonable grounds for belief in the conduct. At the time they formed their belief, they had carried out as much investigation as was reasonable And it was within the range of reasonable responses to treat that conduct as sufficient to dismiss. And so it's a very fact-based. If you listen to that tester and you look at that um, test to look at the reasonableness again, it's very fact, it's very based on the facts of that particular case. So um, did the employer believe the employee was guilty of that conduct? Whether or not the employee was guilty... It's whether the employer believed them to be. And did they have reasonable grounds? So was it just a hunch? Did they just think of it off the top of their head? Or did they just listen to one person's view and make that that decision? In that case, it's unlikely to be reasonable. And then did they um, form their belief uh, after carrying out an investigation? So what's required of an employer is to actually investigate the allegations. And then from that information that they glean from that... Um, they will have reasonable grounds for belief and then they can form their view and if they believe that the employee is guilty of that conduct, then it will be reasonable to take the decision to dismiss and then that's obviously then weighed against what the allegations are and whether it would be reasonable and sufficient to dismiss. So let's just say um, if it's a minor issue of misconduct and an employee's been working there for several years, they've never had any problems before, they've been the model employee in those circumstances, even if there was clear evidence that they'd done what was alleged, so the minor misconduct, it might not necessarily be reasonable to dismiss them for that. And therefore, the employer should think carefully about before moving straight to dismissal as the outcome. Now, what kind of reasonable investigation should an employer undertake? Now, this is a question that I'm asked a lot by employers, because, you know, it's not Most employers aren't trained on dealing with investigations. They're not used to even dealing with um, HR issues and serious HR issues. Um, So it's very hard for an employer to get the balance right between weighing up a reasonable investigation, running the business, making sure the other employees are still working fine and aren't affected by the issues. Now, what's come out is that the level of investigation doesn't have to be the same as if it were a criminal allegation. You're not required to do the same level of investigation as the police, for instance. But the degree of investigation must be based on the allegation and the seriousness of the issues involved. If the outcome of the decision is likely to impact the person's career or significantly impact their reputation, for instance, then there would be a higher burden on you as the employer to go through with a really deep and thorough scrutiny of the issues and evidence. There have been cases where there have been medical professionals for instance where if the outcome went against them then they would be struck off and therefore would lose the opportunity to um, work again in their field of expertise. In those cases the employment tribunal have said that there needs to be a higher degree of investigation That all sounds very nice, but actually on the ground, how how do you deal with that? I think what you have to do is you have to take a common sense approach to it and look at it and think, well, you know, am I doing this person justice by the, um, the investigations that I've undertaken? Have I spoken to the right people? Have I looked into it enough? Have I given them the opportunity to respond and then to follow that up? And it really is a question of, as I say, common sense. And if you're in that position and you're not sure that you're doing it right or you think I haven't really got time to give this the time that it needs, then get some advice, get an external HR person, get a legal professional, someone like myself, to help you out to either do the investigation for you and present the information, or to um, assist you and hold your hand and make sure you're doing it right. So if you've got any concern about the investigation stage, I would recommend that you get advice. Because it forms the fundamentals, as I say, of the reasonableness of your dismissal. If you haven't done sufficient investigation and you haven't got reasonable grounds for believing in the allegation and the um, guilt, if you like, of the employee, then it's unlikely that it will be a reasonable dismissal. The investigation must also be even. So you can't just seek out the um, evidence that you want to um, support the allegations against the employee. You have to look at it from an even-handed perspective. So you, if there's evidence or suggestion of evidence that goes against your inkling or the allegation against the employee, then you have a duty to look into that as well. So it's not just about finding evidence that suits you, but also looking at everything in terms of the Um, allegation. Now then there's an interesting case um, where you might have more than one suspect. What do you do in those circumstances? Well in the circumstances where you have more than one suspect who um, may be guilty of the alleged conduct, if you're unable to establish belief in the guilt of one particular employee, say you've got a group of employees and you can't quite put your finger on who it is and you haven't got a reasonable belief that it's one but you reasonably believe that it was one of that group then you can fairly dismiss the group or if there's two employees both employees for instance and you can do that if the um, misconduct would justify dismissal so it has to be you know justification for dismissal anyway that you've undertaken a reasonable investigation again you have belief that one or more of them committed the act you act reasonably in identifying the group of people and um you can't reasonably identify the person who did it so in those circumstances it would be reasonable to dismiss both parties um let's just say you have a situation where there is um a theft from a, a till which only two employees have access to now you have reasonable belief that there was um that the money's been stolen and You've questioned them, you've gone through a reasonable investigation, but you can't pinpoint which of the employees is responsible, but you know somebody is. In those circumstances, you could dismiss both employees and it would be um, reasonable to do so. So that's in relation to conduct dismissals. As you've heard, you need to follow a fair procedure and you need to look at the virtual test for reasonableness of the dismissal. Um, And that includes carrying out a reasonable investigation. Now, what do you need to do in relation to capability um, or qualification dismissals? Now, capability is something that comes up quite a lot. And I think employers can be quite frustrated by the advice that I often provide in relation to capability. Because quite rightly, you know, they're, they're concerned about their business, about the performance of somebody that they're paying, and they want it dealt with quickly. Now, unfortunately, in most cases... A single mistake or a single a failure to do what they are told, for instance, um, or to do it well, will not justify dismissal. Okay. So what you need to do in a capability situation is you need to um, ensure that the employee knows what's required of them. Okay. So that's the first thing. Make sure the employee knows exactly what you want them to do and how you want them to do it. And I recommend that that's documented. You have that conversation, but then it's written down, it's followed up in writing. Then you have to ensure that you have taken steps to minimise the risk of poor performance. Um, And this would be, although it sounds quite unfair for employers, because you think, well, I'm employing you and I'm paying you your wages, so you should be doing the job that you're paid for. Um, But employers are required to take steps to ensure that the employee is able to do their job correctly. And that means that then if the employee raises an issue about, you know, some kind of equipment that they need in order to do it properly, um, you would be obliged to provide them with that equipment. It's no good saying, well, you can't do your job and the employee is saying, well, the reason I can't do my job is because you haven't given me um, X a, a piece of equipment and then not giving it to them and then later on dismissing them. That wouldn't be fair. You should undertake regular reviews and appraisals with the employee. So that is to say that the employee is regularly reviewed, their performance is reviewed and they're told about it. And you should, with this, give them training, um, encouragement, um, supervision. So if you've got an employee who's failing, it's not good enough just to let them fail. You have to go through some steps to provide them with that support that they need. Now, the employee must also be aware of the consequences Again, it's no good telling an employee that they're not performing very well and that they need to do things better and you're going to supervise them. But not actually saying to them, well, if you don't, you know, buck up your ideas and get things um up to standard, then it could result in further disciplinary action and eventually dismissal. So make sure the employee knows from the outset what the consequences could be. And the employee should be given the opportunity to improve And that's for a reasonable period of time. Again, this word "reasonable." So, what you can't do is say to somebody, "I'm not happy with your performance." You've got a week to to get better, and give them a week, and then say, "Right, that's it. You haven't done better. You're out." It has to be a reasonable period of time. Now, what is a reasonable period of time? Now, what we're talking about here is performance improvement and performance improvement plans, essentially. If you've heard of those, it's basically where you. Give an employee written guidance about what's required of them, where the areas of improvement are, and then you set them a time scale for improvement. So, normally I would suggest about a three month window would be a reasonable period of time to do those things. So, make sure they've got the tools they need, make sure they know what they need to do, to provide them with supervision and training, and see if they improve in that three month period. And if at the end of the three month period they haven't improved, then you can go to the next stage of the procedure. Obviously during that three month period I would recommend that you hold regular reviews so that you can pinpoint and identify if there are issues throughout. So let's just say you put somebody on a performance improvement plan for three months, you tell them at the end of the three months if they haven't improved then they're likely to be a warning or some form of disciplinary action and you know three to four weeks in it becomes apparent that clearly their attitude is Um, terrible they're not interested in proving they um, have had enough Um, you you wouldn't it's not sufficient just to leave it and just like see it out and wait till the end of three months and then tell them you would need to address that throughout and if you're addressing it throughout and then it it still seems that they're not doing anything then you can have justification for bringing forward the period of review on the basis that they're just not um, engaging with you in any way So once you've been through that, you would also have an obligation to look at alternatives for the employee. If really, you know, let's just say you've got a huge organisation with a variety of roles and somebody really, you know, is is just struggling with their job and they're telling you that they're struggling and despite all of your best efforts, it's not working, then you would have an obligation to look to see if there was an alternative for them within the business. So a different role, a different way of doing their role, all of those sorts of things before you dismiss them. In a smaller organisation that's much harder of course and there may not be other roles available but it's just to see that you as the employer have done everything you can to help to facilitate this employee remaining at work and to um, improving. And if you can do that then the Employment Tribunal are not going to have a problem with you dismissing an employee at the end of the um, relevant period of supervision. So that's capability dismissals and what I've talked about there are dismissals where the employee's performance is in question. There are other types of capability dismissals, and they can be around an employee's sickness absence. And you can legitimately dismiss an employee for um, either frequent short-term absences or long-term absence Now, I don't intend to cover that off in this episode because I think it's a particular um, area that needs to be considered and it may be something that we cover in the podcast in the future. But if you find yourself in a situation where you have an employee who's either on long-term sick leave or who's taking various short periods of absence and you want to deal with rectifying the situation, I would recommend that you get some advice before doing so because there can be some sticky areas in relation to the Equality Act, disability discrimination and uh, reasonable adjustments. So that's why I'm not covering it here because it does straight into those realms and this could be a really long podcast otherwise. Okay, we've just got two more reasons for dismissal to consider and the first is redundancy dismissal. In a redundancy dismissal there are different testers that you need to um, apply in relation to ensuring that it's a fair redundancy dismissal. And those are that you must consult and warn the employee about the redundancy situation. You must have a fair basis for selecting the employee for redundancy. And you must take steps to either redeploy or to look for alternative employment for the employee. That's it, the basics of redundancy dismissal. There are some intricacies and they would be covered really in a a redundancy episode. And I plan to do a mini-series on redundancy in itself in the future, But that is just to say that in order for it to be a fair redundancy dismissal, you must at least have consulted and warned, have a fair basis for selection and taken steps to avoid redundancy. And then that brings me on to the final reason that we're going to consider here in relation to the reasonableness of dismissal. And that's for some other substantial reason. Now, if the reason for dismissing an employee is some other substantial reason, it could be a number of things that don't fall within conduct, capability, redundancy or statutory reason. In order to follow a fair procedure for some other substantial reason or an SOSR reason, an employer must investigate the situation, um, consult with the employee, that is to tell them what the situation is, warn them that it could result in their dismissal and then give them the opportunity to state their case, so to respond to the issue in hand and to then balance the needs of the employer and employee in making the decision. So it's not necessarily the case that just because the reason suits the employer, you have to balance both needs. And that's what you require as a minimum in order to have a fair dismissal for some other substantial reason. So to summarise, if there were an unfair dismissal claim against you, you would need to show to the employment tribunal what the reason was for the dismissal. You'd have to show them that you'd followed a fair procedure, which was relevant to that reason. And you'd have to show that you've acted reasonably, in determining that the outcome should be dismissal and that involves in the most common case of misconduct an investigation which is fair and reasonable. What I would say to you is that the quickest way to negate the fairness of any decision is to predetermine the outcome or to have some ulterior motive in mind. When you're in this situation if you do have concerns it's much better to get advice Before you take action, it's so much harder to go back and try to, um, to justify those decisions later on or to try and deal with them at a later date once you get, you know, past the, um, employment trib, once you get to the employment tribunal stage, you know, you have to just work with what you've done. But if prior to making any decisions or starting any processes, you get some advice, you can be sure that you get things right. And yes, it might be time-consuming, but it could be costly for you otherwise in the long run. I hope that you're enjoying this series on Unfair Dismissal. Coming up next in part four of this mini-series is an explanation about the ACAS procedures, how contractual procedures fit into it, and where your staff handbook would fit into the decision to dismiss and an unfair dismissal decision. And part five will be about compensation for unfair dismissal and with some examples of the uh, kinds of awards that could be made. And finally, part six will be um, about how to conduct a fair disciplinary procedure. So it will be rounding up all the information that you've learnt in the first five episodes and giving you an example talking you through exactly how to do it so if you've got any questions about this episode you can contact me by email it's alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk otherwise if you'd like some hints and tips and a fortnightly newsletter on employment law and hr issues you can sign up on my website which is AdviceForEmployers.co.uk. many thanks for listening and have a great week